Chapter Four: The Great Gatsby. To recap, we have met all of the major characters so far in chapters one, two, and three. Chapter three: Nick Carraway finally gets to meet Jay Gatsby when he is invited to a party at Mr. Gatsby's house. In Chapter four, we are going to meet two new characters, but they are minor. Chapter four. On Sunday morning, while church bells rang in the villages along shore, the world and its mistress returned to Gatsby's house and twinkled hilariously on his lawn. He's a bootlegger," said the young ladies, moving somewhere between his cocktails and his flowers. One time, he killed a man who had found out that he was a nephew to von Hindenburg and second cousin to the devil. Reach me a rose, honey, and pour me a last drop into that there crystal glass. Once, I wrote down on the empty spaces of a timetable the names of those who came to Gatsby's house that summer. It is an old timetable now, disintegrating at its folds, and headed. This schedule in effect, July fifth, nineteen twenty-two. But I can still read the gray names, and they will give you a better impression. Than my generalities of those who accepted Gatsby's hospitality and paid him the subtle tribute of knowing nothing whatever about him. From East Egg then came the Chester Beckers and the Leeches and a man named Bunsen whom I knew at Yale and Doctor Webster Civet who was drowned last summer up in Maine and the Hornbeams and the Willie Voltaires and a whole clan named Blackbuck. Who always gathered in a corner and flipped up their noses like goats at whosoever came near, and the Ismays and the Christies, or rather Hubert Auerbach and Mr. Christie's wife, and Edgar Beaver, whose hair they say turned cotton white one winter afternoon for no good reason at all. Clarence Endive was from East Egg, as I remember. He came only once in white knickerbockers and had a fight with a bum named Eddie in the garden. From farther out on the island came the Cheadles and the O.R.P. Schraders and the Stonewall Jackson Abrams of Georgia and the Fishguards and the Ripley Snells. Snell was there three days before he went to the penitentiary, so drunk out on the gravel drive that Mrs. Ulysses Sweat's automobile ran over his right hand. The Dancies came too. And S. B. Whitebait, who was well over sixty, and Maurice A. Flink, and the Hammerheads, and Beluga, the tobacco importer, and Beluga's girls. From West Egg came the Poles, and the Mulreddys, and Cecil Roebuck, and Cecil Scone, and Golick, the state senator, and Newton Orchid, who controlled films par excellence, and Eckhouse, and Clyde Cohen, and Don S. Schwartz, the son, and Arthur McCarty. All connected with the movies in one way or another, the Catlips and the Bimbergs, and G. Earl Muldoon, brother to that Muldoon who afterwards strangled his wife. Da Fontana, the promoter, came there, and Egg, Ed Lagrosse, and James B. Rocket Ferret, and the Dijongs and Ernest Lilly. They came to gamble, and when Ferret wandered into the garden, it meant he was cleaned out, and associated traction would have to fluctuate profitably next day. A man named Clip Springer was there so often and so long that he became known as the Border. I doubt if he had any other home. Of theatrical people, there were Gus Ways and Horace O'Donovan and Lester Meyer and George Duckweed and Francis Bull. 
Also from New York were the Crones and the Backhuizens and the Denickers and Russell Betty and the Corrigans and the Kellers and the Dewars and the Scullies and S.W. Belker and the Smirks and the Young Quins, divorced now, and Henry L. Palmetto, who killed himself by jumping in front of a subway train in Times Square. Benny McClenahan arrived always with four girls. They were never quite the same ones in physical person, but they were so identical one with another that it inevitably seemed they had been there before. I have forgotten their names, Jacqueline, I think, or else Consuela, or Gloria, or Judy, or June, and their last names were either the melodious names of flowers and months, or the sterner ones of the great American capitalist, whose cousins, if pressed, they would confess themselves to be. In addition to all these, I can remember that Faustino O'Brien came there at least once, and the Bedecker girls, a young brewer who had his nose shot off in the war, and Mr. Al Bruxberger, and Miss Hogg, his fiancée, and Ardita Fitzpeters, and Mr. P. Jewett, once head of the American Legion, Miss Claudia Hip, with a man reputed to be her chauffeur, and a prince of something whom we called Duke, and whose name, if I ever knew it, I have forgotten. All these people came to Gatsby's house in the summer. At nine o'clock one morning, late in July, Gatsby's gorgeous car lurched up the rocky drive to my door and gave out a burst of melody from its three-noted horn. It was the first time he had called on me, though I had gone to two of his parties, mounted in his hydroplane, and at his urgent invitation made frequent use of his beach. Good morning, old sport. You're having lunch with me today, and I thought we'd ride up together. He was balancing himself on the dashboard of his car with that resourcefulness of movement that is so peculiarly American that comes, I suppose, with the absence of lifting work or rigid sitting in youth, and, even more, with the formless grace of our nervous, sporadic games. This quality was continually breaking through his punctilious manner in the shape of restlessness. He was never quite still. There was always a tapping foot somewhere or the impatient opening and closing of a hand. He saw me looking with admiration at his car. It's pretty, isn't it, old sport? He jumped off to give me a better view. Haven't you ever seen it before? I'd seen it. Everybody had seen it. It was a rich cream color, bright with nickel, swollen here and there in its monstrous length with triumphant hat boxes and supper boxes and toolboxes and terraced with a labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns. Sitting down behind many layers of glass in a sort of green leather conservatory, we started to town. I had talked with him perhaps half a dozen times in the past month and found to my disappointment, that he had little to say. So my first impression that he was a person of some undefined consequence had gradually faded and he had become simply the proprietor of an elaborate roadhouse next door. And then came that disconcerting ride. We hadn't reached West Egg Village before Gadsby began leaving his elegant sentences unfinished and slapping himself indecisively on the knee of his caramel-colored suit. Look here, old sport, he broke out surprisingly. What's your opinion of me anyhow? 
A little overwhelmed, I began the generalized evasions which that question deserves. Well, I'm going to tell you something about my life, he interrupted. I don't want you to get a wrong idea of me from all these stories you hear. So he was aware of the bizarre accusations that flavored conversation in his halls. I'll tell you God's truth. His right hand suddenly ordered divine retribution to stand by. I am the son of some wealthy people in the Middle West. All dead now. I was brought up in America, but educated at Oxford because all my ancestors have been educated there for many years. It is a family tradition. He looked at me sideways. And I knew why Jordan Baker had believed he was lying. He hurried the phrase educated at Oxford or swallowed it or choked on it as though it had bothered him before. And with this doubt, his whole statement fell to pieces and I wondered if there wasn't something a little sinister about him after all. What part of the Middle West? I inquired casually. San Francisco. I see. My family all died and I came into a good deal of money. His voice was solemn as if the memory of that sudden extinction of a clan still haunted him. For a moment I suspected that he was pulling my leg, but a glance at him convinced me otherwise. After that I lived like a young Rajah in all the capitals of Europe. Paris, Venice, Rome, collecting jewels, chiefly rubies, hunting big game, painting a little, things for myself only and trying to forget something very sad that had happened to me long ago. With an effort, I managed to restrain my incredulous laughter. The very phrases were worn so threadbare that they evoked no image except that of a turban character leaking sawdust at every pore as he pursued a tiger through the Bois de Boulogne. Then came the war, old sport. It was a great relief. And I tried very hard to die, but I seemed to bear an enchanted life. I accepted a commission as first lieutenant when it began. In the Oregon forest, I took two machine gun detachments so far forward that there was a half-mile gap on either side of us where the infantry couldn't advance. We stayed there two days and two nights, 130 men with 16 Lewis guns, and when the infantry came up at last, they found the insignia of three German divisions among the piles of debt. I was promoted to be a major, and every Allied government gave me a decoration. Even Montenegro, little Montenegro down on the Adriatic Sea. Little Montenegro. He lifted up the words and nodded at them with his smile. The smile comprehended Montenegro's troubled history and sympathized with the brave struggles of the Montenegrin people. It appreciated fully the chain of national circumstances which had elicited this tribute from Montenegro's warm little heart. My incredulity was submerged in fascination now. It was like skimming hastily through a dozen magazines. He reached in his pocket and a piece of metal slung on a ribbon fell into my palm. That's the one from Montenegro. To my astonishment, the thing had an authentic look. Rodriguez de Danilo and the circular legend. Montenegro Nicholas Rex. Turn it! Major J. Gatsby, I read, for valor extraordinary. Here's another thing I always carry a souvenir of Oxford days. It was taken in Trinity Quad. The man on my left is now the Earl of Dorcaster. 
It was a photograph of half a dozen young men in blazers loafing at an archway through which were visible a host of spirals. There was Gatsby, looking a little, not much, younger, with a cricket bat in his hand. Then it was all true. I saw the skins of tigers flaming in his palace on the Grand Canal. I saw him opening a chest of rubies to ease with their crimson-lighted depths the gnawings of his broken heart. I'm going to make a big request of you today, he said, pocketing his souvenirs with satisfaction. So I thought you ought to know something about me. I didn't want you to think I was just some nobody. You see, I usually find myself among strangers because I drift here and there, trying to forget the sad thing that happened to me. He hesitated. You'll hear about it this afternoon. At lunch? No, this afternoon. I happen to find out that you're taking Miss Baker to tea. Do you mean you're in love with Miss Baker? No, old sport, I'm not. But Miss Baker has kindly consented to speak to you about this matter. I hadn't the faintest idea what this matter was, but I was more annoyed than interested. I hadn't asked Jordan to tea in order to discuss Mr. J. Gatsby. I was sure the request would be something utterly fantastic, and for a moment I was sorry I'd ever set foot upon his overpopulated lawn. He wouldn't say another word. His correctness grew on him as we neared the city. We passed Port Roosevelt, where there was a glimpse of red-belted ocean-going ships, and sped along a cobbled slum lined with the dark, undeserted saloons of the faded gilt 1900s. Then the Valley of Ashes opened out on both sides of us, and I had a glimpse of Mrs. Wilson straining at the garage pump with panting vitality as we went by. With fenders spread like wings, we scattered light through half Astoria. Only half, for as we twisted among the pillars of the elevated, I heard the familiar jug, jug, spat of a motorcycle, and a frantic policeman rode alongside. All right, old sport, called Gatsby. We slowed down. Taking a white card from his wallet, he waved it before the man's eyes. Right you are, agreed the policeman, tipping his cap. Know you next time, Mr. Gatsby. Excuse me. What was that? I inquired. The picture of Oxford? I was able to do the commissioner a favor once. He sends me a Christmas card every year. Over the great bridge, with the sunlight through the girders, making a constant flicker upon the moving cars, with the city rising up across the river in white heaps and sugar lumps, all built with a wish out of non-olfactory money. The city, seen from the Queensboro Bridge, is always the city, seen for the first time, in its first wild promise of all the mystery and the beauty in the world. A dead man passed us in a hearse, heaped with blooms followed by two carriages with drawn blinds and by more cheerful carriages for friends. The friends looked out at us with the tragic eyes and short upper lips of southeastern Europe, and I was glad that the sight of Gatsby's splendid car was included in their somber holiday. As we crossed Blackwell's Island, a limousine passed us, driven by a white chauffeur in which sat three modish Negroes, two bucks and a girl. I laughed aloud as the yokes of their eyeballs rolled toward us in haughty rivalry. Anything can happen now that we've slid over this bridge, I thought. Anything at all.
Even Gatsby could happen without any particular wonder. Roaring Noon In a well-fanned 42nd Street cellar, I met Gatsby for lunch. Blinking away the brightness of the street outside, my eyes picked him out obscurely in the anteroom, talking to another man. Mr. Carraway, this is my friend, Mr. Wolfsheim. A small, flat-nosed Jew raised his large head and regarded me with two fine growths of hair which luxuriated in either nostril. After a moment, I discovered his tiny eyes in the half-dark 